Uh, I told Lauren, I said, look, there's this class on marriage. I really would like for you to go to it. <laughs> and, um, and it was inspired by Deborah's sermon. But uh, no, I said, I said, no, it, it really, actually, I'm going to be talking about marriage being a little bit of an idol in probably the next week or two. And, um, and I'd like to hear what Julie Sparkman has to say. And then in Gill and Mark Genelette's class, uh, they're uh, talking about Martin Luther, of course, we're getting ready uh, with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation coming up. We're going to be doing a trip to Germany uh, next summer. And, uh, and so uh, they're shamelessly exploiting me. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a portrait of Martin Luther, but I look just like him. Yeah, I look just like him. And, uh, and so they've put glasses on all these Martin Luther portraits, and it's... It's me. So I hate them. But their classes are filled, and, uh, and that's great. But this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the church. We're hopping around in Acts. We're still in the book of Acts. Uh, but um, one of the things that, uh, that I think all of us have noticed is just how fast uh, culture has changed uh, around us in the last 30 years. Uh, it, I mean, in the last year, honestly. But, uh, but what is the role and the place of the church, and what is the church... Uh, four. And so this morning we're going to talk about, uh, answer that question, what is the church, uh, by looking at the book of Acts and in the 39 articles and a couple other places. So Acts chapter 2, let's begin with the 37th verse. Now when they had heard this, that is Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number that day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Okay, so what is the church? A lot of people will say things like, well, Pentecost, which is right on the, uh, right, happens right before Peter's sermon here. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. I don't know if you've ever been to a church on the day of Pentecost. Sometimes they'll have a birthday cake uh, for the church, uh, something like that. Um, and, uh, but in reality, uh, is that the birthday of the church? No, it's not. Uh, the church uh, was really formed uh, as soon as the fall happened. Uh, it wasn't as if the Christian church was some idea in the first century that they said, hey, maybe we should start this. Uh, now, there was certainly, and you see this played out in the pages of the New Testament, uh, this idea of, okay, what does it mean to be Jewish and to believe in Jesus? I mean, even here in Acts chapter 2, what do they do every single day? They go up to the temple, right? They go up to the temple uh, to worship, uh, worship God. There's every indicator, though, in that point in time that they've stopped sacrificing uh, and, and doing that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, they're still there worshiping. And not just that, we see a lot of witnessing in the early church being done in the temple. 
In fact, Jesus uh, uses the temple as a strong witness. Remember the, the, uh, the man who uh, was over the tax collector over in the corner saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then uh, the, the self-righteous man who was uh, praying out loud, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. All right? I'm not like that guy over there. And so it's a really great place. And it's not just, I mean, the closest thing that I think that we have today is if you ever go to a country in Eastern Europe or in Russia that is, in the, that is Orthodox, if you go to one of those church services, that's kind of how it felt. And what I mean by that is you go into an Orthodox church. Now, Greek Orthodox in America and the Americans have been fairly westernized, so this doesn't really count. In some places, it's still this way. But if you're in Russia, you literally go in for church, and there are about 50,000 things happening at one time. And so you've got the priest over here behind the screen. You can barely see them, and they're kind of doing their thing at the table. And, and then you have people wandering around the church, lighting candles and saying prayers. I mean, there are multiple things going on at one time. There are people over on the side just chit-chatting and talking. Uh, I mean, if we did that at the Advent, people would be like, this place is a zoo, right? I mean, there's no focus. There's no... Well, I mean, there were parts of the temple where there was an intense focus, but the temple for the Jewish people was not just... Uh, a center of their religious life. It was the center of their lives. Right? That's where they went. That's where they went to be seen, um, and as well as the gates around Jerusalem, but primarily here at the temple. And so the church, uh, God's people being called out, right? those people whom God has placed his hand upon and said, I am in relationship with you. Now we see, uh, we see that throughout Uh, the Old Testament, most notably when we finally get to Abram, and God says, I'm going to give you a new name. Your name is going to be Abraham, and your wife Sarah is going to conceive and have a child. (laughs) And then uh, then we get through the part where they kind of wander around, and then they finally get uh, to to the promised land, and then we uh, see um, the the, the graphic image of what Jesus and what God the Father does for us in Jesus with uh, Abraham and Isaac uh, there on the, on the mount uh, of sacrificing his son, which uh, he doesn't do, and yet God the Father actually does follow through with that for our sake. And then, of course, uh, Jacob, and then we have uh, the whole Egypt thing, and then they go into Egypt, and then Moses leading uh, the Hebrew people out of Egypt, uh, and so on and, and, and so forth. And so those are God's uh, called and chosen people. Now, why did God call the Israelites to be his people? Right. That's, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the biblical answer. But if you're looking at their resume, you'd be like, we're probably not even going to interview the Israelites. And you kind of throw it over and you move on to, yeah. That's right. That's right. So they were, the, they were a pretty ragtag group of folks uh, who, uh, when they went out into the wilderness, they had just walked uh, through on dry ground, through the Red Sea. And God gave them a pillar of cloud by day to, um, to shade them and a fiery pillar at night to protect them. And uh, when they became hungry, he actually gave them bread from heaven and he caused water to come bursting forth from a rock. He gave them quail. And their response was, I hate manna. You know, it's sort of like, I mean, it's, you know, if you've got little, it's almost like having little children. You know, little children at the dinner table, and you can put the most amazing thing in front of them, and you know that they like it, and yet they're like, you know, one of our kids said the other day, I hate macaroni and cheese. And I was just like, everyone step back for the lightning bolt. Right, because here it comes. That's just a lie. 
So, I mean, even they're grumbling. And uh, if you were to walk from, if you were to walk from Egypt where they were in captivity over through Sinai, over to what is modern day Israel, the promised land, uh, Canaan, uh, it wouldn't take you that long. Right? It might take you a week, and, and that's even at a leisurely pace if you want to kind of stop and see some things. And, uh, and yet it took them 40 years. Why? When they went into the Promised Land, when they crossed the Jordan River, over by where it empties into the Dead Sea, into Jericho, how many were left that remembered Egypt? Two. An entire people group, an entire nation. There were only two. And so God had them out in the wilderness to bring into the promised land those who had only known wandering, who couldn't think back and look back longingly uh, at the flesh pots and all the wonderful things that they thought that they had uh, in Israel. Because for, the, for a lot of those folks, they were publicly declaring, uh, better that we would die as slaves uh, than to live as free men. So, if I were God, and thankfully I'm not, um, I would have said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get somebody grateful. I'm going to get somebody different. And yet God didn't, and he kept his hand on him. And it, I mean, it's most uh, notable when uh, he asked the prophet uh, Hosea to, uh, to do what? Marry a prostitute named Gomer. Now, if the Lord said that to you, you'd probably think, it's probably not Jesus. <laughs> it's probably not God telling me to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And yet here is Hosea loving, actually loving this woman who just tells him straight up, I'm not going to stop. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop doing what I do. Uh, and, uh, and yet the prophet continues to love her. Talk about a vivid image uh, of, of God's relentless one-way love for his people, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And even in other places in the Old Testament, he gives us these wonderful glimpses of just how much he loves us. Like in the book of Judges, there's this ongoing cycle where God raises up a judge, and then the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And then normally he sends, you know, some wild warrior people group in to dismantle them and to destroy them. And then all of a sudden they repent and they cry out to the Lord. And then the Lord sends them another judge. Well, um, that's the cycle throughout the entire book of Judges with one exception. Uh, when God calls Gideon, uh, when God calls Gideon, the people actually hadn't repented. Uh, they didn't cry out to the Lord. Uh, but in his mercy, he still sent them Gideon, the judge, to judge them. Now, Gideon uh, is, is a real mixed bag, and we can talk about him later. Uh, but, but suffice it to say that he was an archetype of, of Jesus. And, uh, and God uh, doesn't wait for us to say, well, you know, they seem grateful enough. They seem good enough. Uh, they've, they've suffered long enough. Uh, but no, at just the right time, at just the right time, God sends Jesus. He comes and he dwells amongst us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, in order uh, to save us. Now, if you've been listening to the gospel readings the past couple weeks, uh, Jesus, and, uh, and I, preached, uh, I preached this last uh, for rally Sunday, but if you were at the 9 o'clock, you didn't hear me preach it. Uh, but Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He took his disciples to... Uh, 
the, the region of Tyre and Sidon. And of course, in Caesarea Philippi, it's a place of pagan worship. Uh, it's, uh, uh, this is the way I described it. It's like Las Vegas meets the Grove Park Inn uh, or the Cloister or someplace like that. And, uh, and so it's there in that context that Jesus says, uh, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Tandy, you've been there. You've seen it. You've seen the little niches in the wall where they would put little idols. And, uh, and then before that, they were over in the region of Tyre and Sidon where Jesus has this very difficult conversation with, uh, with the, woman, the Phoenician woman who, uh, who asked Jesus to heal her daughter and has that awkward conversation about crumbs and dogs under the table and things like that. And uh, Stephen McCarthy did a good job with that passage. So go back and listen to it. But these are places that no God-fearing Jews would go. And yet, and yet, that's where Jesus is taking them. And that's what Peter is saying in today's text, right? That, that who is the promise for? The promise is for you and your children and, and for all who are far off, who are far off. And so no longer is your ethnicity really what gets you in. And you could convert to Judaism, um, and there are some tales of that in, in the Old Testament. Uh, and the sign that you were part of the covenant community of God in the Old Testament was for men, circumcision, right? But now, in the New Testament, uh, what we have is that God is not circumcising other things. Uh, he's looking for a circumcision of the heart, right? The baptism is now the, the entry into the church, whether you're Jew, Gentile, male, female, everybody receives the same entry right. Everyone comes in uh, by faith, believing in the Lord Jesus, and are baptized. And not just that, but their whole families are coming in as a covenant group of believers. And so I don't think that it's wrong uh, to call the church the new Israel, right? That that, that is God's chosen uh, people, those uh, who are not confined to a geographic location or a certain ethnicity, but in fact, the world, right? The world. And he tells his disciples, the last thing he says to him is what? Yep, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, right? Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost and teaching them what I have taught you. And lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. And so what is the church, right? The church I mean, this is one of the amazing things. I've already talked about the Orthodox, that every church, if you go to a church in Africa, if you go to a church in Asia, if you go to a church, I mean, if you go to visit different churches here in Birmingham, um, you're going uh, to see believers in the Lord Jesus who are, are in relationship with him and in relationship with you. We talked about that last week. Remember, if God has called you into fellowship with him, it also means that he gets, he's picked your family, right? That he's also called you to be in relationship with other people. And so you're going to see all kinds of different uh, manifestations of worship and things like that. And yet still the body of Christ, right? Still one in, in unity. You know, I, I like this class because I can kind of say whatever I want, um, but, uh, but it, I can say it and keep it in context. But I got a little bit of flack about the Franklin Graham crusade. And I can understand why. Um, uh, there's a really, uh, you know, I, I guess when it comes to social media like Facebook and Twitter, it's amazing what people put out there, right? Uh, you know, things like, you know, and so the worst are, you know, when a family member's, you know, put, somebody once in my family put up as their Facebook status, 
I just don't know if it's worth it anymore. Right? And they said they wanted to be left alone, but of course, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, what should we do? It's the most ridiculous thing. Well, Franklin Graham has the habit of putting things up that sometimes are not entirely helpful uh, on Twitter and, and on Facebook. And yet, one of the things that was really wonderful about that event is really never before in the life of the city of Birmingham have we seen so many different churches come together uh, and, and be a, a part of something that was really neat and, and, and wonderful. And I think those relationships... Uh, have have continued, uh, but even though I mean I'm, I've gotten pretty close to uh, to two uh, Baptist ministers in town. Um, well, I'll just name names: John Cantlow at Sixth Avenue Baptist and Adam Mixon at Zion Springs Baptist. And uh, I once asked them, "Would you all ever come to Advent?" And they kind of looked at me and they said, "Are you inviting us?" Or are you asking us if we would go? Could we or would we? And I said, I said, no, no, no. Like, you know, if you had the Sunday off, would you, would you come to Advent? And they both looked at one another, and they just started laughing. And they said, you know, Andrew, no offense to you. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's just not our speed. And yet they could say that uh, to me, and I wasn't offended in, in the least, uh, because here are our two brothers in the Lord Jesus, who I love very much, and, and I think they love me. Uh, but... Um, but you can be honest in that assessment. So there's an incredible, uh, just in Birmingham, diversity uh, when it comes uh, to the church, whether it's worship styles and even some pretty thorny theological issues like uh, baptism or uh, even uh, the Lord's Supper. And so the church really is the body of believers, right? The body of believers that have gathered together, uh, regardless of what your background is, uh, that you're one in Jesus Christ. The English reformers did a very good job of articulating this in, uh, in the Articles of Religion, which if you have a uh, microscope in your purse, you can read uh, in the back of the prayer book because the print is so tiny. Uh, but this is what they say of the church. The visible church of, of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. As the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, so also the church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. So what they're saying is it's the assembled group of believers, and there are two things that mark the church, right? That the, the word of God is preached, and that the sacraments are rightly and duly uh, administered. Well, what is uh, the, the pure word of God preached? It means that preaching is really important and that the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion are really important. Why? You know, in, um, in our tradition, uh, in the latter part of, actually, you know, it wasn't even, the, it was the latter part of the 20th century, but somewhere in the 1960s, the Episcopal Church just decided preaching isn't important. It's just not important. And uh, what really is important is making sure that you do the liturgy really well. Uh, and so, in fact, uh, there was, there's a term for this, and I don't know if they still use it. Uh, for the clergy who are here, if, if, you, if, if you went to Virginia, no, Craig's somewhere else this morning. But they, um, they a friend of mine who was at a, a seminary here in the States, asked me if I was taking uh, classes on priestcraft. It's like, 
priests, what is that like, Dungeons and Dragons for priests? Like, I mean, priestcraft, what is that? Uh, and he said, you know, it's, it's, you, you learn how to do the liturgy, and you hold the plastic baby doll, and you, 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 you baptize them, and, and I'm like, I mean, that's, can you imagine someone walking in on that? That's weird. And, um, and, uh, and I said, no, uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't do that. Uh, but if you look at a, at a syllabus for a seminary, it's going to give you a pretty good indicator of what the seminary thinks is important. Right? And, uh, and if you're spending a whole semester on holding plastic babies, then how could you not get the message that what's really important is is the baby. And I once asked, I went back to school and I asked Alistair McGrath, uh, you know, why don't, we, why don't we do that? And he said, he said, well, uh, partly because of my own experience. And I said, what's that? Uh, you may not know this. Alistair McGrath is from Northern Ireland and he was there at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Belfast as an infant being baptized. And they have this huge, huge font uh, that uh, you could actually if you wanted to dunk the baby, you, you could. And I know that sounds crazy, but actually a lot of Christian traditions do dunk the baby. And, uh, and the elderly dean at the time uh, had Parkinson's pretty bad, and so he dropped Alistair in the font. Uh, and so he always feels like he has a leg up with his Baptist friends. And he's like, <laughs> I was, I was dunked, I was dunked. Um, and so, uh, and he's doing okay. So. Um, so the, the preaching of the word is, is so, gosh, I can't even underestimate its importance. Why? Well, uh, Paul says it. If there are, not, if there are no preachers, then, then how will people know? Uh, how will people know? Uh, the Diocese of Alabama gathered, and we had a really uh, neat guy. He's a professor at Luther Seminary named Dwight Shiley, and uh, he wrote a book called People of the Way, Renewing Episcopal Identity. Uh, now, uh, clearly, it's a niche market, uh, but uh, he does a very good job. He does a very good job of diagnosing what the problems are in the church. And yet, he and I have uh, pretty significant disagreements over uh, what uh, the prescription is uh, to deal uh, with those problems. But you could see, I mean, what, what made it so great is you could see the clergy, and, and there were some times where he made me feel uncomfortable, just getting really uncomfortable when they would ask questions like, you know, how much time do you spend preparing your sermons? How much time, uh, how much emphasis do you put in, in spending time in the Word apart from getting ready for a sermon or getting ready for a class? Um, and uh, the bottom line is, is that most of us don't, right? Most of us don't. And some of it is because the culture of the church and not just the Episcopal church, but mainline denominations today, it really is significant to me that one of the most effective bishops of the Diocese of Alabama uh, in the 20th century was Bishop Carpenter. And do you know how many were on the diocesan staff? Two, right, until they hired Peggy Rupp. There was a secretary who sat over in what is now called the living room and up over top of the living room where the youth suite and now the curates are, uh, was the bishop's office, and he was the bishop of the entire state of Alabama. And yet, that was probably one of the most effective times of ministry uh, that we had. Why? Because he preached a lot, and he was in relationship a lot. What you see in the book of Acts, that there's this connection in the church, honestly, between preaching and relationships. Right? If, you know, it, in a big church, and we, we are in a big church, so I need to be careful how I say this, um, you know, I had a friend who was going to a big megachurch out in Seattle, 
and I was talking to them about their preacher, and they said, oh, the preaching's amazing. And the way that they were talking about the pastor of the church, it sounded like they really knew him. I said, that's really amazing that he's able to, to make that much time for you, that it sounds like you're able to hang out. He goes, oh, I've never met him in my life. And I, I've, I've never met him in my life. And we started to talk about it, and, and I said, well, do you ever feel like he's not connecting, that he's not relating to you? And he said, well, yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes I do. And so, at least from my perspective, there's a definite relationship uh, between relationships that you have with your fellow believers and, and in preaching. Right? And it's not that I'm using all of you as examples in my sermons, although some of you I am. But, uh, but what it is, is that um, you ought to be able to identify with your preacher and to think, he, he, under, he gets it. He, he understands life at, at a very real uh, level, that he's not this person who's kind of out there and uh, spends his time at home uh, reading Trollope and his prayer book and uh, doing all these things, which are not bad things to do. I like Trollope just fine. Uh, but, uh, but actually is, is somebody that you can relate to. And the Reformers got this. And you can see this by, if you go into uh, churches that were altered at the time of the Reformation, and I know that they give everybody so much grief about things like, oh, well, they destroyed this chapel and they destroyed this stained glass window. It might have been a good idea uh, that they do that because they were becoming uh, places of superstition. Uh, But they really still were into aesthetic value in the church, and they wanted the church to send a clear message to the congregation about what was important. And you see this in colonial churches in America, right? So if you go into a colonial church in America today that's in the Anglican tradition, what do you see? You see a huge pulpit. You kind of have to look and get a little bitty little communion table. And uh, not that it's denigrating uh, communion, but what it is is that the communion service is the preached word acted out before your very eyes. So you've heard and now you see. And if you go to Oxford today, if you go in a Christchurch cathedral, you kind of sit there and it's a choir set up so you're all, you know, it's pretty narrow. And you start looking for the pulpit. And where, where in the world is the pulpit? It's not in its normal place. It's actually in the middle of the congregation. So the poor minister has to walk all the way halfway down the cathedral thing and go up into this high pulpit. Uh, But the reason why it was built that way is that they wanted the parishioner, the worshiper, to see that the person, the parson, it's the old English word for it, the person representing the congregation is coming up out of the midst of the congregation and preaching the word in the midst of the congregation. Right? So this idea of preaching really being paramount uh, and in the latter part of the 20th century in our tradition, uh, it really taking a back seat to making sure that you do things uh, just fine. And I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, um, uh, I told you the ordination uh, advice that Fitzsimmons Allison gave me, um, and I was waiting for these deep and profound words because he just sort of paused. And I thought, well, here's 50 years of ministry about to be imparted to me. And I was you know, ready to, to bask in it. And he said, Andrew, in the Episcopal Church, you can preach heresy from the pulpit, and they won't say a thing. But you start moving the furniture around, and they will tear your rear end up. Um, uh, right? So, and he's right. And, and, and he's right. And in fact, the, the, the sort of little popcorn comments that I'll get after the service are things 
that, that have to do with that. You know, like, I noticed that you did this in this order, and it really ought to be done in that order, and things like that. So we've, uh, we've created... Um, uh, we've created something uh, in, in that. And the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance, and all the things of necessity are requisite to the same. So what the Reformers are saying is that out of this preached word comes this powerful symbol of baptism, uh, which has largely been lost in the church, because now when we talk about baptism in the church, uh, especially in our denomination, uh, you hear things like the baptismal covenant. And you know that part of the service where we take, you know, do you, after the Apostles' Creed, we, we you know, say that we will, uh, uh, with God's help, uh, to do those things. And those things are great and wonderful in and of themselves, uh, but, um, uh, like, you are, really ought to respect the dignity and, uh, of every human being and strive for justice, all of those things. I thought it was interesting that the last General Convention, they uh, allowed churches to add one more thing to the baptismal covenant, and that is that you promise to be a good steward of God's creation by recycling and working for environmental justice, right? I'm all for it. I'm a recycler. I pick up trash on the side of the road, I'm, 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 but, but probably not in the baptism service, right? And so we've kind of created this covenant in our tradition that has a whole lot more to do with here are your responsibilities and obligations, when in fact baptism is the complete opposite of that. Right? Baptism is about God getting you. Right? It's about what God has done for you in Jesus. I mean, think about the symbolism in our church. I mean, how many children have you ever seen willingly come up to the font for baptism? Right? They either come because mom has given them half a Benadryl, or, uh, or they come kicking and screaming. And you know what? Whether they like it or not, guess what's going to happen? They're getting baptized, right? They're getting baptized. They really, you know, have no say in the matter. And I know that there are a lot of families out there that say things like, well, we want it. Now, if you come from a Baptist tradition, this makes total sense. But even in our tradition, when people say things like, well, I want, I'm afraid of being too overbearing with the kids, and so I don't, um, I don't want to have them baptized, uh, but I want them to make that uh, decision uh, on, on their own. Uh, but the visual reminder that whether you want to come to the font or not, uh, God has his hand on you, and you become part of the covenant family of God in that moment. Now, what's been lost in all that is the whole rite of confirmation. Uh, one bishop said that uh, confirmation is a rite in search of the theology. Uh, and I don't think that that's true. I just think that we've misplaced it because now we've made baptism the end-all, be-all of being a member of the church rather than our own life in Christ together and our relationship individually with the Lord Jesus. And so, you know, for confirmation in a lot of churches, it's sort of like Gentile bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs, you know, where you just kind of come to this magical age and, and, and you, you get them confirmed rather than this is when they appropriate their, this is the moment when the concerned parents are worried about being overbearing, uh, this is the moment where they take the faith on as, as their own, right? And so confirmation really is the completion of baptism. It's, it finally makes that sealing uh, a reality. And so I have had some distraught parents, I don't think anybody in this room, uh, but when the child uh, says, you know what, I, I really don't believe in Jesus. It's like, well, then you probably should not be confirmed and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you, you know, just when you're ready, we'll, we'll confirm you. And I get a phone call from the parent, but we've ordered the pedophores, and grandma and granddad are coming to town. What are we going to do all that? I'm like, well, y'all are going to have a great party. Um, 
It, it sounds great, but, um, but confirmation is serious business, and people think that, that confirmation is when the bishop puts his hands on your head and, uh, and, and prays for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look, if you're already a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within you, right? And so, but what's power, the, the, the high point of the service is when, whether you're 13 or whether you're 80, when the person says, the confirmant says, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When they, in front of the midst of the congregation, they say to the body of believers, you are my brothers and you are my sisters, right? And, and I've come a, become a full member uh, of the family. And the bishop representing the church, the church universal. So it's not just Keith Sloan. Keith Sloan is representing the church in Alabama. He's representing the church in the United States. He's representing the church around the world, right? And so, and here is the church praying for you, right? Laying their hands on you and praying for you. It's not just key. It's not just a bishop. It's, it's the church uh, that, is, that is praying for you. And so um, this idea in, uh, in our church of the baptism being the end-all, be-all is really, uh, is really uh, misplaced. Now, baptism is, of course, a mystery. It's, of course, a mystery. Um, I don't believe in baptismal regeneration, mainly because the articles, and I don't think that the Bible teaches baptismal regeneration, uh, but it's more than just a little bit of water on the head of the child. It's more than just sort of a, a high-profile, highbrow dedication of the child. That uh, you see that in the book of Acts, where I mentioned this last week, the Philippian jailer, this is a good example, the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian, and who was baptized? The whole family gets baptized, from oldest to youngest. They all get baptized. Why? Because they're now in the covenant family uh, of, of God. And the family is the basic means of evangelism uh, in the church. Right? So, uh, and uh, the Advent does a really good job of this. Y'all do a really good job of this, of not really relying on the church thinking, I'm going to drop my kid off. You tell them about Jesus. Right? But really, where your kids are going to learn about Jesus are from you, which is a scary thought, which is a scary thought, I know, and it's overwhelming. Uh, but, uh, but their ideas about God are going to be um, derived from you. Now, Dwight Shiley, this guy that I mentioned, uh, one of the things he said that I was gl- very glad that he said was that um, St. Francis is often quoted as saying, uh, always preach the word, and if necessary, use words. Now, St. Francis never said that, okay? He never, ever said that. And, uh, and I know I say this a lot, but uh, if that's true, we're all sunk. <laughs> all right, we're all sunk. If our life, and this is another, if our life is the only Bible that people see, we're going to fall short, right? We're going to fall short. Uh, rather than, you know, somebody said, well, your life is the only Bible people may see. And I was like, actually, it's the most, you can go over to the Tutwiler and get a copy out of the hotel room. It's everywhere, right? I mean, here's, here's the actual word. But what our lives are in this community marked, as I said last week, by vulnerability and transparency is that we're all a wreck. And what we're modeling to one another, to our children and to the world, is our own brokenness, right? And the grace and the mercy that we have for one another, uh, which is really rare. And, you know, there's this irony in the world today uh, that, on the one hand, nobody gets fired. 
nobody gets fired. I mean, it really takes something to get fired from your job. And I'm not talking about economic reasons or we're downsizing. I'm talking about getting fired because you're not doing your job or whatever it might be. And yet at the same time, there's never been this higher level of accountability and judgment when it comes to people and how they live their lives. And I wrote about Ashley Madison in the... I mean, you know that there's some poor girl out there named Ashley Madison, and, uh, and it's a pray for her. Um, um, but, uh, you know, I, I wrote about that, and um, Todd Liscom, who's, uh, who works with Richard Simmons, sent an email out, and in that email he quoted someone saying, you know, I, I may not be on that list, but I'm on a whole lot of other lists that nobody else has seen. And, uh, and that's the truth uh, of the matter. And uh, of all places, the church ought to be a place where the preaching uh, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are for sinners. So when you come forward to the communion rail, uh, what is your posture? Right, what do you bring with you? I mean, if you bring your purse, I know that that means that you're going to leave right after taking communion. <laughs> but... Um, but um, Nothing. You don't bring anything. You bring nothing to the table. And you, you kneel, and you spread your hands out like a beggar. Uh, and you simply receive. You simply receive uh, what has been done for you. And so when we say, um, the, this is the, bo- the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life, We're bringing to mind what Jesus has done for you, right? Think on that and take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed upon him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. I mean, in some sense, you're receiving Jesus, which I think is so funny because if somebody did an altar call in the Episcopal Church, people would fall out. People would be like, ah, you know, what's what's happening? Remember when Mike Hill did it during Lent? People just thought... What in the, only because of his accent, people said, oh, isn't that cute? Um, but uh, he's from England. So, uh, but every time we have communion at the Advent, we issue, we issue an altar call, right? As a response to what Jesus has, has done. And here you come, flooding the aisles and coming down and, and receiving uh, Jesus. It's just such a powerful and wonderful thing. And to be gathered around the table. I mean, when you, when we baptize, we have godparents. But we also ask the congregation, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to uphold this person or these persons in their life in Christ? And what do we say? We will, right? Uh, Which means uh, just in those two simple words, congratulations, you're all godparents, right? You're all godparents. And it really does take all of us looking out and working together and being together as a family saying, this is now my brother or sister. Uh, We're family now, which if you don't like the parents, may be a little bit uncomfortable, but I've told you, there's nothing more significant and more humbling for me to take the common cup and to drink after someone who I really don't like, right? Or to kneel down next to somebody who maybe you'd rather not kneel beside, or maybe someone who's just very, very different uh, from you. And yet, that's what the church is, is all about in its preaching and, and in its ministry. And so it really does uh, need to be a hospital for sinners and not a country club for the righteous. Now, I I said that in a sermon, and on the way out, somebody said, you know, I think that's right, that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for the righteous. But I always thought uh, of the Advent as a uh, country club for sinners. And, uh, (laughs) 
thought, well, there, there you go. Um, so. Now, I didn't get all the way to where, uh, to where I was going, so I'm going to pick it back up. Where I'm going to talk about is individually and this whole idea of identity. And I am going to get into issues like who we are as sexual beings. Um, what does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a mom? What does it even mean to be white? What does it mean to be black? Uh, so I'm sure I'll get a lot of letters after next week. But until then, questions, comments, concerns. So the diversity of the church is what we're talking about next week. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.